0: Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollack. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips, too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast, our listeners on our FM station in New York, and our listeners on our two Philadelphia radio stations. It's Tuesday evening drive time for you.
1: We have an exciting show for you today, bringing you an insider's look at pen and pencil, the oldest press club in the country. And later, we'll spice up your drive time with self-taught chef. Shetna McQuan
0: And we're back. Amorous Pollock introduce us to your fabulous guest.
1: Hi, everyone. I want to introduce you to Raphael Tiberino, who is the new general manager of Pen & Pencil. He is coming on with the new culinary director, Nintembo Chavez. Um, they're both taking the Pen & Pencil Club, which has been long established in Philadelphia, in a new direction both you know from the culinary perspective and also from you know what to expect when you visit there uh, i really am looking forward to what they have to offer because the menu there and the cocktails are going to be amazing you'll hear about that later on in the episode but we will first introduce you to Raphael Tiberino, who will tell you his history in Philadelphia and his family's history in Philadelphia, and how that brought him to this point of being the G- GM of Pen and Pencil. Raphael, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, no problem. Um, so you actually have a wealth of uh, history, like, or your family actually does, in in the Philadelphia area. So. It's, it's amazing that you have been able to, you know, not only bridge the gap of, like, the artistic side, you're also now, you know, running pen and pencil um, and bringing them into a new direction. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your history, um, your family's history in, in the Philadelphia community?
2: Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let me make this long story as short as possible. <laughs> Mom and dad, my father met my mother at a uh, going-away party about a block away from uh, where our family compound is in uh, West Philadelphia. She had just uh, graduated from uh, the Academy of Fine Arts and uh, had the, uh, I don't know, either the cool-headedness or the craziness to say, you're the woman I'm going to marry the first time he met her. So uh, my mother pretty much just thought she was, uh, he was insane and uh, (laughs) wrote it off like that. was living in new york my uh my father showed up there and uh he was extremely persistent (laughs) so uh seven years later they ended up getting married they uh they moved both moved back to uh, where they were from which is uh which is philadelphia my father grew up in kensington my mother grew up in uh west philadelphia around uh 38th and uh hamilton which is uh which back then was called mantua they're uh they're messing around with uh changing of certain names in certain neighborhoods now but uh it's still for anyone who grew up in this neighborhood considered mantua but uh both of them uh with their uh with their heavy artistic backgrounds and uh decide to make a life for themselves going uh going in that direction uh so time goes on later uh they had uh all of us they had a wonderful life my mother got sick when uh in the late 70s with uh cancer and uh, you know, for all through my teens, up until she passed away in my early twenties, she was sick, but she still uh, created a heck of a lot of art. And uh, they were able to have a wonderful life together. My father opened a bar called Bacchanal that was on uh, South Street, the 1300 block, and it was there for it. about years. And uh, it was a wonderful place because it was outrageously interesting music scene, but also a wonderful art scene uh so and uh bacchanal was also very interesting because back then that area was pretty i mean the projects were two blocks away so it was definitely a uh a different uh a different animal in terms of safety and everything else the door guys were always outside making sure guests were safe uh and it was a very unique crowd of a little bit of everything you had doctors and lawyers uh, hanging out with plumbers and blue collar people, but also poets and different teachers from the different universities and, uh, different painters and things of that nature. So it was a very, it was a very unique, interesting, uh, dynamic in terms of the different types of people that, uh, that hung out there. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I, I got spoiled working there. I worked there when I was at the Academy of Fine Arts, uh, for, uh, I guess, from 87 until 91 and just thought, oh, wow, this is cool. I guess all bars are going to be this cool, which they were not, as I found. (laughs) Uh, So uh, when when, uh, Bacchanal closed, my – I guess everybody kind of geared their energies towards my mother's last year being alive, which was 92, and, uh, you know, dealt with that. She, 14-year illness, kind of thought that she was never going to pass away. And she was always creating art. She was always holding court. You know, there was always just such a rich – artistic environment here uh you know we kind of got into the uh got into the uh the frame of mind that she was never going to go so when she did go it was uh it was definitely uh disheartening and sad but you know we move on and uh, i guess around 1999 my father decided to uh turn our compound out here in west philly into a museum which it always was uh spiritually but uh it actually took on the name and the actual museum status at that point and it was pretty much a love letter to the love he still had for my mother and uh, also the, uh, the collection, not just of her work, his work and the fact that we're, uh, we're all artists but also uh, the collection of art that we have because I collect art, my father collects art. We have a lot of different people that have always been a part of this place that have given their time, giving their artistic energies, things of that nature. So uh, I've always liked to use the term living museum because unlike regular museums where, you know, it's a lot of cold marble, very air-conditioned, a lot of the people are dead, uh, there's constantly still an artistic uh, energy that goes on here in terms of people still being alive, still creating, even though my father's gone now, my mother's gone now, and a lot of the friends that are, are gone now. There's always younger individuals, younger people still adding to the energy, which is the Tiburino uh, the Tiberino uh, dynamic, I guess you could say.
1: <laughs> and you you are also um, a co-founder of Subculture Gallery in NYC? And- yes,
2: yes, yes. Subca- subculture, uh, I lived in New York from uh, 96 until, uh ooh, 2005. And, uh, yeah, that was, I at the time, like my mother and my father did, and I still think, you know, I think all artists or all young people should, do a journey, get away from home. And I think for artists, it's really important. And at the time, New York was uh, still a pretty great place to go to and, uh, live as an artist and be an artist. I had a wonderful, uh, studio in the basement of the gallery on Broom street, which was, uh, I guess, right between little Italy and, uh, and, uh, Soho. So it was just a wonderful place to constantly take in energy and deal with different people. And constantly every day you walked out on your, uh, On the street, and it was just a visual adventure, you know. And uh, I had run uh, Bacchanal for my father uh, the last couple of years; it was open as uh, as manager. And then when I moved up to New York, I started managing different. uh, I mean, I was running the gallery or co-running the gallery, but I was also. I've always had a love of uh, of bars and uh, restaurants and things of that nature. I love uh, I love bars with a lot of history. Uh, so places that have been around for 100 years, or places that uh, are in old neighborhoods where you're going in the afternoon and you have the 70-year-old guys all there telling stories and having drinks. I've always I've always been extremely fascinated by places like that. Do do a lot to my father taking me to lots of places like that when I was little, but also because you know they're extremely interesting. You know, so uh, uh, dealing with different bars like that up there. Uh, of course, Dirty Franks uh, was always our family uh, clubhouse for all intents and purposes. My father started going there when he was uh, uh, at the University of the Arts, which I think when he went there was called the Philadelphia Mu- Museum School back in the uh, 50s. And he was the first person who walked in and asked uh, the owner, John Siegel, at the time if he could hang some paintings on the wall. So that's uh, for anyone who's uh, not familiar with Dirty Franks, they have a pretty thriving little art gallery that's in there. It's called the Off the Wall Gallery that exists to this day, and that started back then when Dirty Franks was pretty much a, uh, a skid row bar for all intents and purposes.
1: Now it's a trendy bar that everybody tries to go to.
2: <laughs> back, well, it was always that. I mean, uh, my father always told the story about uh, Bob Dylan getting thrown out in the uh, early 70s because the owner said, we don't have a music license. You got to stop playing that guitar and get out of here. He had no <laughs> idea who he was, you know? So even, <laughs> so, is... so even back then, it, uh, uh, the, the cool kids liked to go there.
1: Yeah, see? Now, did all of that history that you have within the Philadelphia art art and bar scene prep you for um, taking over as the general manager of Pen & Pencil?
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, it's always been kind of just a part of what I do and uh, what my father used to do, uh, you know, hanging art shows at different bars and running uh, art, art events and, uh, you know, wine and cheese events at different bars. I did a vintage wine bar for, uh, for a load of years. I did it at uh, know, all kinds of different places. So, yeah, I mean, Bacchanal was kind of the start of that. Uh, the other bars I worked at from the Trocadero to, uh, to uh, God, what are some of the other bars? Uh, Grape Street <laughs> Pub. We did all the murals up there when Grape Street was uh, up there back in the early uh, 90s. Uh, before uh, Barney Weiss and his sons uh, relocated down to uh, Center City and and took over Woody's and uh, Voyeur, and uh, I think they had the Palmer Social Club before that. So it's all it's all a history lesson, and it's all uh, everyone knows everyone and and just jumping through time and taking your experiences uh, with you as you move forward. So-
1: and and i mean you are doing that because you are in evolving pen and pencil into a different you know direction but like you said you appreciate and um enjoy going to places that have you know a huge history and pen and pencil is our country's oldest journalist um based Club, uh, and it actually, you know, why don't do? You, why don't you tell a little bit about Pen and Pencil's history?
2: Yeah, uh, Pen and Pencil literally it comes from a time period where, at the time, there were thirteen dailies and evening papers all running. So the the, the newspaper uh, was a much grander thing than it is now. It held a lot more weight and a lot more gravitas. Uh, between now and back then, uh, I believe there have been let me double check this real quick 13 different uh different places that the pen and pencil has been let me just
3: i
1: think that yes you are correct i know it's moved a few times um and the final location that you've been in for a, a very long time at this point um was basically you took three of the surviving clubs and combined them into the one which is now pen and pencil
2: Right, 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 right. And 13, 13, 14 sounds right. So, yeah, it's uh, see, it was uh, 1892 when uh, the pen and pencil opened as what it is now. Now, the first time I was at the pen and pencil, uh, they had already gone through a bunch of different places. There was a place on the top floor of the 1600 block of uh, Samson Street and uh it was there and i had someone uh, a writer named clark de leon who took me there for the first time when i was uh underage i guess i was about 18 but uh <laughs> everyone thought i was a lot older than i was because i was uh i was bartending already and then uh helping to run uh, my father's place and things like that so it was uh you walked up to the third floor and this place just had so many different old photos and so many interesting people and it was uh no, we it's that's that's what attracted me to uh, the club now, uh, bringing a new spin, but also not taking away with it from what the place has now in terms of uh, extreme amount of history.
1: And it does. I know that there's um, guest speakers that come into uh, pen and pencil and they speak you know, discu- they bring up discussions or whatnot. And there's been some infamous um, and notable people who have been guest speakers that have been in pen and pencil, um, including, I think, uh, a past mayor of Philadelphia and even a uh, president of the U.S. Had, had snuck in at some point in time.
2: Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And we like the, uh, the term off the record because what happens there pretty much stays there. So it's uh, everyone that comes in and talks. It's uh, they're supposed to have a little bit of a, uh, a free way to just like talk and enjoy themselves, talk about certain things. But the press aren't there to write stories about what they're saying either.
1: So it's a more, more relaxed environment.
2: Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. Very much so.
1: And now, of course, when everybody's, you know, sitting down, relaxing and having off the record discussions, um, what better way to have those discussions without, you know, than than to add in food and drinks? Because oh. I exactly
2: <laughs> back uh, back when I used to go there over the years. I mean, I've been going to the pen and pencil uh, since since I was a youngin. and when I used to come down from Manhattan, I would always go, you know, in there, take friends late night or whatever. But the gentleman who cooked there for uh, a long time and was one of the head uh, bartenders, and is still there, uh, kind of the uh, the elder statesman to the club at this point. His name is uh, Dennis Hagen, and I remember at one point coming in, and lamb chops and mint and mint jelly and uh, and uh, all kinds of uh, mashed potatoes and asparagus. I mean, you could get a really nice, wonderful plate of food in there, and it, and you know it didn't break the bank. You know, it was uh, it was uh, relatively inexpensive and really. Uh, Really, uh, really good food, you know. And of course, there's the old school standard of the club, which is the uh, the hot dogs, which are there and they've been there forever. And from what I heard, the story I heard was that that uh, that started up during uh, during the Depression. I guess uh, they were always there for anyone who wanted a free hot dog that might have uh, might not have had enough food or whatever the case would be, and they were there. And that is one of the traditions that does still uh, stand. But it is separate from the uh, from what happens in the kitchen. <laughs>
1: Um now you have a new culinary director as well who has joined Pen and Pencil and he is taking the menu to a different level as well.
2: Mr uh Mr Tambu Shavis and then Tambu Shavis. And uh we go back a ways to high school actually and I've always uh I've always respected him as a person and uh In more recent years, I uh, became a real good, uh, a a big fan of what he does in the kitchen, so to speak. So when uh, it got to me taking over this kitchen, or the the whole place, and thinking about what was going to happen in the kitchen, I wanted to try to do something a little different, but something a little interesting also, and something with someone who is a bit of an artist in the kitchen and won't just stick by, you know, things that everyone expects and maybe do stuff a little bit different and i thought he was the uh he was the perfect choice for that
1: and i you know i know that you have to be a member in order to be one of the participants like somebody who was walking in or um you know or asked to join for the evening like you've mentioned a couple of times um but like if we were to walk in there what would be one of the 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 new uh menu items that he is offering uh, you know for for members to eat
2: Oh uh, well he's doing uh the staple, which is a really nice burger, which is uh definitely uh very good. He has a uh, a really good uh a salmon, a salmon kind of sandwich. He's also doing uh something I've never seen before. It's a uh it's a uh seven spice chicken on a, a roll that's similar to a uh to a brioche uh, roll, but then he uses a uh a potato salad spread, which is really nice, on the sandwich, which is something that I've never seen before. But he's, uh, he's constantly changing, doing different things on the menu every week also. So the soup is always different every week uh, and things of that nature. So it's, uh, you know, I tend to, nights he's there, I tend to go in every week and bring friends and definitely enjoy different things on the menu to make sure I'm not missing out on, uh, on uh, any of the changes.
1: Now, if I were there, one of the the I'm I'm a strict like if I'm going to any kind of bar, I always end up and uh, ordering old fashions. That is one of my favorite drinks. Uh, as far as the cocktail menus are concerned, have you guys brought in any new creative cocktails or any seasonable like changes for? We're,
2: we're- be doing more of that in terms of a menu. I mean, the old school standards are something that the pen and pencil always did well, and we still do. So you can always have a uh, Negroni or a, uh, an old-fashioned or a, uh, a really good martini and uh, things of that nature.
1: And that's always good. Now, now as far as the direction of, of pen and pencil, you're taking it in... Um, With your artistic background, with your whole entire family being artists and having, you know, made names for themselves, uh, you know, are you going to bring some of that art into pen and pencil to display?
2: Oh, without a doubt. I already did. One of the first things, I mean, the biggest pain in the butt about this thing is I was all fired up and I took over Two, uh, two months I was there and then COVID hit and everything shut down. So... It gave, gave me a lot of time to think about all these things that I had planned and uh, everything going by the wayside for a, uh, for a bit until we could reopen again and get started again. But what I had done, I had uh, filled up the whole second floor uh, bar area where we have the private parties and have different things of that nature with uh, different paintings of mine. But the plan is to have all kinds of different artists showing there, to have revolving art openings. Uh, and also have uh, the artists talk a little bit, the way we do the off-the-record things, but not just with writers, but also with artists also, where they can talk about what they do, their backgrounds, their art, things of that nature.
1: I believe that Gene has some questions for you, too.
2: Sure, sure.
0: Well, let's first of all, uh, congratulations on your venture and, and making it through COVID and continuing as you're going. And the Pen and Pencil Club does have a... Uh, an amazing history as a Philadelphia food historian and, and, and person who really loves those little venues. Um, thank you so much for, you know, bringing this back to life. And I love how you throw out, you know, some of the great journalistic names of, you know, Philadelphia, like, you know, Clark Leon and people like that going in there, you know, taking you in. Like, you know, there's just somebody on the street and, you know, the reality is they're legends in the city of Philadelphia. But
2: oh yeah, 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 without a doubt. Mark has been like a crazy uncle my whole life. So uh, you know, when it, whenever whenever you run into him, it's uh, you know, it's it's family. He's you know, all these people are family. They were all friends with my family, my parents, and you know, because of that, they're they're all family to me now. Also, you know.
0: Well, and you know, you are in good hands with your culinary director there. I know the very well. Our past, have, uh, we've worked on many projects together throughout the years, and, um, you know, very good man, great uh, great set of skills. So I look forward to, uh, you know, hearing more and more and more about that.
2: Shavis, Shavis in- is very interesting. interested in doing a almost like a supper club uh, atmosphere, different events and things like that also. He's extremely fired up in uh, the different uh, directions he wants to take the kitchen into.
0: Yeah, Sam and I have spoken about that many, many times, um, you know, in, in my world as a consultant and chef and, and, you know, food person. We have kicked around ideas before many times. So, you know, you're very good answer. And, and I think Philadelphia is right for a great supper club scene in that. So, you know, that being said, you know, what what do you see in the next year, year and a half coming, you know, into play in the Pen and Pencil Club? I mean, right now it's a, it's a private membership club. Do you see, you know, a day where, you know, it may be open for a supper club for the public for one day a week or, you know, things in that line?
2: Well, we can't be open uh, to the public because of our status. We can have different people bringing friends in that aren't members right. yet, and there could also be a night perhaps once a month or something like that where we call it perhaps a membership drive where then the people right, that right. About it that aren't members yet can come in and then we can go about it that way. So I see more things like that happening, definitely.
0: And then, you know, obviously you sound like you want to keep that great tradition of the classic pen and pencil crop and what it meant to the journalistic community at one point in the city of Philadelphia. But, you know, taking it to a little bit of a cutting edge uh, type of situation you know, going forward. How's that being received by the members?
2: Oh, the members are enjoying it. I think, uh, you know, let's face it, the the newspapers uh, and the journalistic scene isn't the grand dame that it was 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. So it's uh, it's just bringing in a new energy, which I always find to be nice, especially with places that have been around for a long time. You know, it's... uh, People that are writers, even that are younger, and things of that nature, but maybe just don't know about the place yet, or people from other cities that are hearing about it for the first time, and when they come, they reach out to me about how can I come in, how can I see the place. I think it's I think it's uh, it's important to keep the place relevant by keep, keeping some freshness, but also not throwing out what made it exciting and what makes it interesting to walk into that place.
0: People don't, you know, understand the great heritage like. Pen and Pencil Club, but another one that comes right to mind that I love so much, you know, down a little bit more South Philadelphia is the Mask and Wig Club, which is
2: you know very I've, similar. You know, I've been there for 10, many now. many a wedding. It's definitely a uh, or a wedding reception. It's definitely a great place.
0: It, it really is, and, and you know, great history going back to you know the early days of you know University Theater and and drama and and everything that goes with that. And you know, there's so much history involved in that so you know you you were really the steward of all this is there plans to you know besides the art world that you're bringing in there is there plans to you know expand the the look of the club to reflect a lot of that history and you know the journalistic styles of philadelphia and such while not treading on the privacy and you know the relaxation of the members
2: Well, the big thing, and this was a big uh, project that's been going on uh, since we closed. There was a huge accumulation and collection of art, original art and uh, photos and uh, different things from the last hundred years that had just moved from pen and pencil to pen and pencil to pen and pencil. And it had survived a couple of fires and had survived some different things and were just kind of really not being looked after properly. So uh, me and uh, one of the other, uh, uh, one of the board members uh, took uh, took months to kind of go through uh, everything, catalog it, go through it. Temple is uh, taking over in terms of uh, helping us uh, uh, catalog it and uh, and uh, keep it safe properly. But then we are going to go through a rotation. Of the work, the older stuff also, which I think is going to keep that uh, the history extremely relevant. There's thousands and thousands of just wonderful pieces of art that uh, haven't seen the light of day in uh, in a while. So it was a real treat for me, being an artist, uh, being one of the main people going through all this stuff and helping to sort through it.
0: Well, thank you for doing that. That's a, you know such a vital part of the history of our city and uh, the history. I, I'm you know certainly a little bit older. I was in a family bar many times in my life. Um, I, I knew that scene. I loved it. I loved the feel of it. It was a, an amazing place. and You know, Dirty Frats as well. And, and, you know, the great history of these little establishments where people tell the stories in the city of Philadelphia. And that, that era seems to be gone today. People are so focused on, you know, convenience of just, you know, who has a good cheap drink or whatever and not a place where, you know, people can come together and make a difference because everybody is accepted. There's no, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the plumber or the lawyer or the university of professor. You gotta seat
2: at the bar. Exactly. You're, exactly. And that's you know, it's uh that's what I always loved about going out in this town because a lot of times when you would sit down, you don't you know it's it's pretty much faded away now. I knew your father, or I knew your mother. No matter where you went to sit, you know. Oh, your father grew up here. Yeah, I knew him. And now, uh, you know, if you if you don't see the old guys in the room anymore, you're probably the old guy in the room. You know.
0: Oh, I'm certainly the old guy in the room. Don't worry about
2: that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, it was Tim Haas who was uh, the treasurer of the club for years uh who who helped me out, uh who took over as uh being the uh, uh the person to uh help me take point in terms of going through all the artwork and things of that nature.
0: Well wonderful. Thank you for doing that and and I look forward to uh you know I spoke with uh the probably about two weeks ago we spoke on the phone a little bit he was telling me about what's going on a little bit so it's very exciting to have you here with us and
2: uh awesome, awesome. and yeah uh in the or family, I'm the, uh, I'm the, uh, I'm the godfather of his daughter. We've known each other since, uh, since high school. He's, he's always, he's always been a good friend. So it's, uh, it's very nice to be working, uh, working with him on this project.
0: Well, I, I actually met him first through, I guess, another family member, of that, James Ebo. Oh, okay. Um, no, James. James, James worked for me for many, many years as a bartender, and uh, we became very close, um, and. You know, I met uh, Nintendo through James, and then Nintendo did a little work for me. We did some projects together, and it's, it's really wonderful to uh, see the full circle. And, and for an older guy like me that's coming to the you know, the last 10, 12 years of my career, it's wonderful to see the the new blood taking over. So you know, congratulations to you both on that one.
2: Well, thank you, and it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, getting involved in the Q&A a little bit.
1: <laughs> uh, Raphael, thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. I would love to uh, have you back and you know, maybe sneak in there as a guest one day.
2: We can, we can, we can definitely make sure that happens. You know how to get in touch with me and uh, whenever you want to come down, uh, we'll definitely uh, look forward to having you there. Uh,
1: thank you. I appreciate that. Um, now, where can we find you and how can people become a member?
2: I would say the easiest ways uh, are to uh, friend the Pen and Pencil uh, Club, either on Facebook or Instagram. There's also the uh, penandpencil.org uh, slash join, uh, where you can go on to there and uh, find out more about doing that. And, we're, and the main thing about the, uh, the Facebook and the other thing, it's the easiest way to find out when we do have the membership drives and things like that, where you can come in, meet, uh, meet different uh, writers different uh, active members and things of that nature because you do need to have a sponsor that is a uh, active member, uh, to, uh, and that would be the perfect way to meet some people and actually hang out at the club and uh, see if you like the energy that's there.
1: <laughs> All
2: can right. I ask
0: one more question concerning that?
2: You definitely As can.
0: Di- digital and radio media, do we qualify?
2: I would say yes. Okay.
1: That's perfect. We'd fit right in. <laughs> All right. Raphael, thank you so much for joining us again.
2: Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to, uh, uh, to talk with you, and it was, uh, I look forward to uh, meeting both of you in person.
0: Let's take a break, and we'll be right back.
2: To become
0: a sponsor of our show and promote your business or event on every single podcast platform, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music, in addition to WWDB Talk Radio every Tuesday at 6 p.m. evening drive time. Email us today at diningonadime at yahoo.com for our very low rates. And we're back. Amorous Pollock introduce us to your fabulous guest.
1: Hi, welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. I want to introduce everybody to Chetna McLuhan. She is one of my friends and a very talented person. Um, Welcome to our show. Thank
3: you so much, Amaris. I'm looking forward to it.
1: <laughs> so, uh, why don't you tell us like how you got into the bit uh, into the culinary world? I know that you were originally from a you know born in a different country.
3: Um, so, how did you get started? So, I was brought up in a North Indian family. I'm North Indian, um, and a lot of my cooking style is a mix because not only am I Indian, but my family was uh, brought up in Kenya, in East Africa. So um, I've never been to India. I know it sounds funny because my family went from Africa directly to the U.S. or the U.K. So, uh, But my parents were born there, grandparents, so on and so forth. So a lot of the Indian cuisine that I've learned in my home has a bit of a Kenyan or African influence. Um, And If you're familiar with African cuisine a little bit, they do use a lot of curries and spices and herbs and stuff. So it it fits in perfectly with Indian cuisine. So my mom today is probably one of the best cooks you'll ever meet Um, and I've learned everything from her. And I've always wanted to show people how to make her foods in a simplified manner. But of course you go through life like, okay, people will learn on their own. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But it was always something at the back of my mind so life went on, college, got married, and so, and uh, I was telling my mom, like, hey, we really need to be able to show everybody how to make your, your eggplant curry or your chicken curry, um, but she was just one of those shy people, so I was like, all right, I'm going to make it my mission one day <laughs> to at least show my neighbor how to make her food, uh, so it was always in the back of my mind. So one day, I was talking to my husband, and I was telling him, I want to be able to kind of simplify the process of making Indian food, because I remember my mom would spend like two, three hours in the kitchen for a dish. And, you know, back then, they had that time. But nowadays, we're busy, we have families, we have work commitments, so on and so forth. So my husband was like, uh, why don't you just start having a couple friends over and kind of just do like a a, a cooking class, you know, like, like a girls get together or something. So I did that, I I kind of treated it like I was teaching school. I had a menu. Everybody had their own chopping boards, their own knives, like it was going to school. Um, And so I had about 10 or 12 people sign up. And it was just a fun thing. But I wanted it to be interactive. So I had everybody at my stove cooking, and I'm kind of directing them. And then one thing led to the other. And I was like, man, this is really cool. Like having people cook, and being able to learn while, like, learning what to do while they're actually understanding it, the process, right? And so it was just so much more fun than just going to a class and having that, like, school environment.
1: Yeah.
3: So I started doing that. And then word of mouth, um, you know, my friends and other people started recommending these, I guess, uh, unofficial, official cooking classes that I was hosting in my house. <laughs> and then from there on I was invited to other restaurants and then other venues. And so one thing led to the other and here I am, it's been about five or six years of going from my kitchen, my kitchen class to wherever people need me now. (laughs) I know. And um, and I know that you've been, you've actually made appearances
1: on like TV. Like you've, you have, you know, co-hosted and in little venues or whatever at pop-up markets um, around Philadelphia as well and, and you've worked with some other you know chefs like I know chef Kathy Bolt she's one of the LaDom um mm-hmm. members as well so you know you you really do get around and you're like expanding um, and I, I hold you in very high esteem because I even brought you into one of my networking groups to, uh, to teach my, my fellow ladies um, I remember how that. To eat, yeah.
3: or uh, how to cook in Indian cuisine. It was so much fun. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I met a lot of people and I think a lot of it is just, you know, taking the opportunity to meet people who are a little bit better than you just to learn from them, you know, and, and even though I do Indian cuisine, I've grown up in it, you know what, there's so many other things that I still need to learn about cooking or even other cuisines or even how I can integrate other cuisines into Indian. And so it's just, it's a fun process being able to just meet people because it's like, food just completely brings people together, right? I mean, no matter yeah. what you believe, what you think, at the end of the day, like having a meal at the table is so awesome. Like it's nothing better than that, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: And like, I, you know, not everybody loves like spicy food, but I feel like if they just tried, you know, like, cause there are definitely ways to mellow out the spices, you know? Absolutely. And of course you could be like somebody like me who, even though maybe my belly doesn't like the spice level, I love the taste. Right.
3: <laughs> um, well, I remember you and I met for dinner a couple of years ago, and that was a lot of fun. We kind of ordered everything on the menu. <laughs> Listen yeah, you to all the conversations at- going on. You remember that? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and like you introduced me to a, a couple of things that I didn't know, um, you know, at that time. And, uh, include, and then even later down the line, when, you know, I brought you on, to mm-hmm. to show us how to cook, you you know made suggestions on like where to pick up some of the ingredients because, um, not for nothing like there's a lot of ingredients that are on that list that most people are like where do I find that? So you know you're very informative too, not only just with when you are teaching and you know giving those pre-course um, directions, you also have on your website you know a breakdown of the different ingredients as
3: well. Right. Yeah. So on my website, I kind of, um, you know, I for me, I, I guess I, I like to teach people the way that I like to be taught. And I'm one of yeah. those people. That I want to have everything dissected for me. I need my pictures. I need my explanations. But that's the thing about Indian cuisine. I think a lot of people are just intimidated to try it, whether it's even just going to a restaurant or even trying to cook it. Because yeah. you're right, Amorous. there are a lot of ingredients and there are a lot of spices in it. But I think um, my mission, so to speak, is to be able to show people it's really not that complicated to make it. Um, you know, you don't need to buy like 10 pounds of turmeric or, you know, 20 pounds of fenugreek <laughs> like I would. <laughs> yes, yeah,
1: but to the degree that you cook with it, like, I think it makes more sense.
3: Yeah, I, I think I have enough cumin powder till I have grandchildren. So, like, <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs>
1: Maybe I should have borrowed some of that because I recently, actually like two days ago made a curried cauliflower soup. And okay. uh, yeah. So I like, I didn't know where my curry was in, in my cumin. Um, so maybe I should have just texted you. Like,
3: yeah. I could hey. be like your, uh, you're like Amazon for spices. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. But I think, um, I think a lot of people are just nervous to try something new. And so, whether it's Indian cuisine or any type of cuisine, a lot of people are just used to that comfort food, right, of whatever they see, whatever they're used to or grown up with. And so um, I think it's just a matter of trying to open people's eyes to new flavors, new textures, um, new countries, you know, like there's, it's a diverse, it's a diverse world. So why not take the opportunity to try something new? And, and I don't force people like, uh, like, oh, hey, you need to have a whole plate of chicken. But I'm like, hey, at least try it. You might like it. You might not. But at least, you know what, expand your horizons. And I think that's what it's about. You know, I'm yeah. not out there to be like my cuisine is number one and, and you have to only eat my food. I, my goal is to kind of encourage everybody to try something new. And, and I happen to be doing Indian cuisine. So enjoy it. You know, there's spices. There's a beauty to it. And there's a smell and the flavors. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really cool thing. And I'm really, really thankful to be able to share a piece of my culture with people.
1: Yeah. And and that's just another aspect of it. Cause I think like when you do teach, you do explain things, um, you know, while you're going along, explaining like the ingredients, why this is incorporated, how this is going to blend, you know, how this mm-hmm. one thing, uh, you know, elevates another element. So, you know, you actually get into like the different dynamics of, of the actual ingredients themselves which is a beauty like a beautiful thing on its own as well because mm-hmm. you know each thing you know garners an, another element to the, like the flavor profile and what you're enjoying and tasting and, and involved in and as you said every you know food is the center of you know everyone it brings people together and why not bring people together bring ingredients together
3: right I agree I agree
1: i see we have a (laughs) pop-in um
3: we got special um, guests everywhere
1: (laughs) it's fine it's live (laughs) um so you know along with with the different kitchens that you you've you know hopped into like the different pop-up um Mm -hmm. I keep saying pop-up but it's more like an established kitchen that you know has like a ghost kitchen or a teaching kitchen Mm -hmm. um you also have contributed recipes to you know various blog sites too
3: right yeah so um you know when people are interested in Indian cuisine or specific ingredient um I'll try my best to kind of you know, pull a recipe that pertains to that blog or what they're interested in and kind of just share. Um, for example, you know, since we're on the topic about turmeric, um, maybe I, I did a live a couple months, I believe, right before um, Christmas about just the health benefits of turmeric and being able to talk about that um, because there are, there's are so many facets to different spices that um, I guess, you know, you can take it from a, from a flavor aspect or, or a health, perspective, um, or just a specific dish that people are interested in. And so it's been fun being able to contribute to different blogs and kind of, you know, work with different, um, other personalities and other cuisines as well has been really, really cool. Yeah. And,
1: you know, like you said, um, I like that you mentioned the health benefits of turmeric because mm-hmm. I know that that along with cumin and um something else that uh, within that that el- those elements they they're anti-inflammatory. I think right. one of them helps with headaches, um bloating. Like there is a lot of different health benefits to, you know, oh, the they fit. definitely are. Yeah. Um, and for me, a big one is especially like in the, the cold time, like the cold air, the snow, rainy, you know, rainy weather, um, anything that is an anti-inflammatory, um, naturally taking it is beneficial because I'd rather
3: put something in my body. That's all natural than, you know, chemical. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know, um, when I, my mom was a vegetarian, so when we had dinner, um, most of our meals are vegetarian and it was just fresh vegetables, freshly ground spices. Um, all of our sauces, we'd use like a little bit of ghee maybe or oil, um, but most of it was really healthy. I remember that, you know, we grew up with like wheat roti, um, which is kind of like a non, but very, very flat and it's simply made with just wheat and water and oil and that's it. And so Indian cuisine in our home was a healthier version. Um, granted we had our sweets you know and and you know if you've heard of ghee clarified butter um, that in itself is a if you sweeten it up there's nothing better than like sweet butter you know
1: (laughs) 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 I mean you add sugar sugar and fat together and yeah
3: of course (laughs) life-changing but um, yeah so I remember growing up we mainly have our our fruits and our vegetables Um, I don't think I really started cooking meat until I was married just simply because I just was brought up having vegetarian food at home. Now I wasn't vegetarian. Um, I would eat it on special occasions. So when I had chicken, for example, like a chicken curry, mm-hmm. I would have it like once a month or even like once every three, four months. And it was like a special deal. Like when my mom made it, she was vegetarian, but she made the best chicken curry. <laughs> like I don't know how she did it, but she wouldn't touch the meat for anything. <laughs> she would let like, make my dad cut it um just because she was like grossed out like, I'm like but mom
2: <laughs> but uh
3: yeah but she really taught me personally like to pick fresh over processed or to have fresh spices over you know uh older older spices and stuff so um yeah Indian cuisine is healthy but again everything in moderation right yeah and um Speaking of things that,
1: you know, you definitely have to have in moderation, you definitely have a whole entire section. on like, sweet versus dessert Right. <laughs> on your recipes. And I saw that you did a, um, a donut version of, um, I'm, I'm
3: gonna- Oh, mention. gulab jamboo the jambus? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So have you ever had that before, the gulab I have jambu? had that before. Okay, so they're sweet, for, for your viewers or, or your listeners, they're sweet milk dumplings made out of um semolina and some condensed milk and then saffron and then you'll fry them till they're nice and golden and then you'll soak them in uh, like a simple syrup like a rose i put a little bit of rose in there so i i like them they're tasty but i was like why don't we try to make it into a donut form and it was was brilliant (laughs) it was really good so we had uh the jambu flavored donut the cardamom saffron donut and then it had a rose glaze on it. And then just, you know, for fun, we did some candied roses and candied violets on it.
1: Aww. And of course, I had
3: like three or four in the name of food. I have to taste this, everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> I
2: but
1: mean, that was really did fun. Away from sweets. Like, I don't, I don't know too many people that don't
3: see something sweet or donuts or cakes, you know, and want yeah. to take, take a sample. I know. <laughs> I know. But that's the thing. Like, most of us chefs, like, we will like, oh. Oh, this is pretty
1: good. All right. I'll keep eating it, keep eating it, keep eating it. So I'm going to go back to savory. Now for somebody, obviously, you know me, you've known me for a few years now. (laughs) And so, you know, that I I love Indian food. I love anything with spice. I love Thai. Um, But for somebody who is new into, you know, exploring their uh, palates in in the realm of spices, what would be what would be like an introductory meal that you would suggest that they should try?
3: So um, let's I guess let's start off from appetizer, if you will. So um, I would recommend trying samosas or pakoras, and pakoras are basically like vegetable fritters, um, spiced in gram flour and other spices as well. Uh, in a excuse me, not spiced, but they're seasoned in a batter that's spiced with different um, other ingredients and vegetables and stuff and then samosas i guess are almost like our indian version of an empanada if you will or jamaican beef patty so um they're delicious so usually there'll be potatoes and peas in it spiced and then they're fried till golden brown so that's a really good um starter then for dinner i would try like a chick a butter chicken I'm not going to say chicken tikka masala because um, it's good, but my favorite is a good intro would be a butter chicken because mm-hmm. you really get like the flavor, that thickness of the Indian curry and the tomato-y kind of like uh, tartness and spice. And then for a vegetable, I would- of The of the butter. Yeah. And, yeah. Absolutely. So then for a vegetarian, I would pick, there's one dish called Navratra Korma, and it's like a um, mixed vegetable dish in a cashew cream. Mm-hmm. That's a good introduction. And also palak paneer, which is spinach and Indian curd cheese. So those are two dishes that I would highly recommend, I guess, a newbie would try. Because yeah. you just get a good, they're not overpowering, you know, they're not intense flavors and stuff, but enough flavor that you'll get a good, um, I, guess I guess, I get a good dose of like Indianized uh, taste. <laughs> now, and if you mix, um, as-
0: if you mix that with... Yep. If you mix that with grape, you know, naan and throw in a mango lassi, you got uh, it. Very shortly, and I'll pick up dinner. Exactly.
3: Um, Exactly.
0: One of the things I think is very important for our listeners that are new to Indian cuisine because we throw out, Americans throw out the word curry all the time, like it's a universal thing. And it is far from universal as you can get. So if you could just touch a little bit about, what a curry really is and sure. you know the differences, obviously from you know northern and and other regions and you know that you know people can create curries at home
3: right sure so um i guess and i'm really glad you asked that jean because i was just reading a book about curries and so something that really uh, stood out to me was the word curry right um when people say, I don't like curry or, or I love curry or I've had this curry, curry is just a generic term. Um, and it really just means a meat or vegetable in a spiced gravy or a spiced sauce. And you can have, or, or just seasonings in general, not necessarily even like a, a, a liquidy kind of sauce. So curry itself is just a, a meat or vegetable spiced up with different ingredients. So North Indian curry, Has a lot, uh, is a lot of like veggie based, veggie based sauces, if you will. So when I make my sauces, I don't really use water or anything. I blend up tomatoes and onions and jalapenos and garlic and ginger and cilantro, and that's my base. That, and then you'll add your meat and vegetables as well. Um, South Indian curries use a lot of coconut and tamarind and a lot of those sweet and sour flavors as well, and a lot of fish, from what I understand, fish and a lot of um, uh, rice flours as well, and North Indian on the other side are a little bit more of like thicker, creamier dishes as well. So curry itself is not necessarily like just a, just a, a, a name, like a, for a specific dish. It's just the idea of a meat or vegetable in a seasoned broth, so you will, or a thick seasoned sauce. I like that definition. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. A- and I thought it was interesting because, you know, like growing up, even, even I say like, oh, I'm going to have a chicken curry or, or, or people will say, oh, I'm not really into that curry. And I was like, okay. But then when I read, I read about like the definition of curry, I'm like, yeah, you know what, that makes sense. Cause curry is universal. It goes with any type of cuisine. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's, it adds a different element to like, cause I've added curry to, uh bar- <laughs> to some of the barbecue sauces I've made for from yeah. scratch. So mm-hmm it definitely adds, you know, it takes it up a notch and it gives that element where people who aren't familiar enough with it are like, what is that?
3: Right. It's a mix (laughs) of spices. That's essentially what it is. Curry, if you will. Yeah. Um,
1: So now when you are teaching classes, do you teach them on different levels of, you know, like I, you know, somebody who's walking into the kitchen and they kind of are just like, what do I do? Versus somebody who's more of a seasoned chef like Jean mm-hmm. <laughs> and yourself who knows, you know, how how to handle themselves. Do you have different levels of, of classes? Uh,
3: do you mean like when I do in-person classes? Just, um,
1: uh, I mean, I assume that you're yeah. going to, ask. you would probably ask the, the people who are taking the classes, are you comfortable in your kitchen and, you know. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I try to take the approach of just keeping everybody at the same level. Um, Just because I don't want to make anyone feel like intimidated, like this person's better than me or so on and so forth. Um, You know, and and since everybody is cooking together, it's really a conversation starter. And so the seasoned cooks, if you will, are able to add a lot of input about, oh, hey, I've tried this at home or maybe this will work. And then it kind of just, is very casual, very conversational, where the people who are not comfortable as cooking kind of like take guidance from the people around them. That's just the approach that I've taken for my classes. Um, yeah. Just being able to ask everybody, okay, so, you know, just tell me how, what kind of cooking do you usually do at home? And then based on what they tell me, I kind of gauge uh, what is the best way to, to take the, what direction to take the class in. Yeah.
1: Um, so you had mentioned in-person classes versus obviously a lot of the classes that you're doing because of pan- the pandemic or right. through the Zoom. Um, what are some of the you know, places that we can reach out and take some of your courses? You know, where can we
3: learn some of your recipes? So usually um, you can go directly to my website. It's called spicopedia.com and from there, you can, I have an option for virtual classes, or excuse me, cooking classes. And then you can just let me know on my website if you're interested in in-person classes or virtual. Um, and then I will communicate. And we decide on a menu together. Before anything happens, I find out, you know, what are your, what's your comfort level, your spice, and what's your preference? And then we build a menu based on uh, what that individual is interested in. And so when we do the class, we're doing dishes that, the guest is actually excited about instead of me just haphazardly picking a couple dishes you know so that's that's been the fun part too Is I kind of let everybody do a bit of research like all right you've never heard of Indian food why don't you check out these couple in chicken dishes or these couple vegetarian dishes and let me know what kind of piques your interest
1: yeah <laughs> so what can we where can we find you next um do you have any pop-ups that you're doing or um kitchens that you're walking into doing, you know, an appearance or, um, you know, are you going to be on TV again, the kitchen to kitchen?
3: So right now, um, you know, with this whole pandemic, um, I'm doing in-person classes. So people just communicate. I go to people's homes. um, And again, it's really just what people's preferences at this point. Uh, there's a couple of kitchens that are about to open in the future, but obviously, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, but I do weekly uh, lives. It's called, I have my own, I guess you will, kind of show. It's called Food for Thought. And I have different chefs come on from all, all walks, bakers, um, professional chefs, home chefs. And then I'll cook with them on the live and we'll talk about their foods and all that. So I've been doing that every Saturday as well. Um, And we'll see about television in the future. Um, Having another show would be nice, but you know, one step at a time. (laughs) I think everybody's kind of just, you know, walking on tiptoes through this pandemic, but uh, you just do the best that you can with every opportunity that comes up.
1: Yeah. So again, thank you, Chetna, for joining us. I know that we have to uh, let you go because you have another obligation, Um, but we will check you out at... um, Spiceopedia.com, and as well as on your Instagram, cm spice
3: culture. Correct. Yes, <laughs> and also on Facebook, I'm at Spice Culture Cooking, so we can uh, talk about food on there too. Exactly. Not well, to that we like. Thank you so much that. for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize
1: for uh, for a little bit earlier. You and no I worries. know Gene knows what happened, but um, thank you for joining us again. And thank uh, you so stay- much. <laughs> I and appreciate hopefully it.
3: Hopefully, we'll have you on again soon. Okay. I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure speaking to both of you. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Thank you.
1: And for our listeners at home, you can find us on Philly as well as um, you can find me at arpolicus or arpolicus at gmail.com for anybody who is looking to be a sponsor of the show or to join us as a guest. And Gene?
0: You can find me across social media at Gene Blum or IBFoodie2, or you can email me directly at IBFoodie2 at yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two, at yahoo.com. And please stay tuned for future episodes. We have a couple of exciting shows coming up for you. One from the NFL Honors uh, Dinner and Event in at Los Angeles, and another one from the Super Bowl coming up for you. So some great sporting stuff coming up, as well as an amazing Chinese New Year event with one of our favorite people, Chef Joe Poon.
1: Also stay tuned and email foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com and let us know where you've been eating, and we might give you a shout-out on the radio.
0: Have a great Tuesday, everyone.